Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 12. Today, I'm thrilled, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Byron Yon. Byron is the lead pastor of Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's also one of the hosts of the very popular podcast, Theocast, one which I am a very fluent listener. I'm so thankful for Byron and his continued ministry to me personally. It was just such a privilege to have him on the show and have him give a clear and informed perspective, really, on the edifice, as he calls it, of Reformed theology. As one who has transitioned from the fundamentalist camp into more of the Calvinistic camp, he provides a unique outlook and insight into both perspectives. You also talk about the crucial distinction between the biblical notions of faith and faithfulness, and the fallacy of getting stuck in one room of theology. I was greatly, greatly encouraged by this conversation, and I think you will be too. Today's show is sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, helping readers make a deeper connection with God's Word and inspiring a lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for both the serious student or for sharing the Bible with your neighbor, hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. Now, Byron Yon. Today we have a very special guest gracing our presence, as it were, the illustrious Byron Yon. How are you doing, Byron? <laughs> when you said illustrious, I thought, there's a, was there somebody else coming on the show? What's going on? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited to have you on. I've been wanting to do this for a while. And so just right off the bat, if you can, just introduce yourself and your ministry. Um, and just so our listeners get a little bit more familiar with you. Uh, I've been at my current church in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Community Bible Church, CBC, Community, however you want to describe it, uh, for 15 years. My wife, Robin, and I came to this ministry out of uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, 15 years ago, where we were uh, serving in an associate role um, there. Uh, We have three children, uh, 20 years of age. 17 years of age and 13 years of age, a girl, two boys. Um, We graduated twice, I might add, from the master's seminary in California. I got my uh, 
MDiv from there and then went back sometime later to do a DMIN on expository preaching um, and really have been uh, in most ways, I think, progressing into uh, further into a reformed world. That's kind of a general way to put it. So there's been, there's been a constant reformation in my world from the very beginning. I was heavily influenced by a guy by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, Jr., expositor there in Dallas. And he, he endowed me with some pretty rich theological foundations and heritage. I've been building on those ever since. So my life is uh, very much in progress. I was called to ministry when I was 17, 18 years old. Uh, So I'm 46 now. You can do the math. So it's been a long time. A lot of experience, most of it good, a little of it very difficult. Um, Currently at Community, we we claim to be a church that has ordinary people who experience extraordinary grace. Um, We definitely classify ourselves as a reformed Bible church with some qualifications because we're credo-baptist, not paedo-baptist. We have some other views with respect to the future and the distinction of Israel and the church and other things like that to kind of keep us on one side of that reality. Uh, Dr. R. Scott Clark would say that we're only partially reformed, but um, we enjoy a pretty vibrant ministry there. Um, and I get to partner with my own staff and another podcast called Theocast, which we really kind of enjoy. And mm-hmm. I've written you know, two or three books on various subjects throughout the years. Haven't written anything in quite a while. I, I literally ran out of things to say (laughs) (laughs) and and didn't want to contribute to the chaos any longer. uh, So uh, that's kind of my, my, my life in a nutshell. I'm a Southern boy. I was, I was raised in Mississippi Mm -hmm. and then moved to Los Angeles, go to school, then Dallas and then Nashville. So Nashville is like the right bowl of porridge for us. I mean, it's just right for our family. It's a great city to live in, a vibrant city. You know, we we like to say we invented Christianity here and then screwed it up, sent it out to the rest of the world. <laughs> Is Nashville also considered a buckle of the Bible Belt? Because where I grew up, it was considered the buckle. So I, I know a lot of southern states claim that. So, Yeah, I think regionally that's uh, true. Although I would say Nashville, where, you know, the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention Mm. <laughs> uh, that's that's in the center of the that's like the turquoise turquoise stone in the center of the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah, that's that it's, as, it's, as, it's as deep culturally into with that kind of southern cultural religion as you can possibly get. Mm-hmm. I imagine so. But I love hearing about pastors uh, stay at ministries for a while. They feel called there and have serving faithfully there. And I'm really glad to hear that you've been there for 15 years and you're just continuing to push forward and um, just talk about your time there coming to community and then what brought you there and, and, and God's calling you into that ministry if you can. Well, I, I was in a, in a Bible church in Dallas that was really leaning, tilting towards Arminianism mm-hmm. um, uh, as a pretty rigid dispensational church. I came out of a dispensational seminary <clears throat> And was very bad at it, quite <laughs> frankly. And so the leadership and I reached, reached an agreement that it was probably time for me to move on for any number of reasons. I had been there five years and it was try, time to adjust and move. So 
I uh, got a, actually got a call saying that there was a church in Southern California, Orange County, California, looking for a pastor. And I said, look, I, I come from a Southern heritage. I think that's where I need to be. And I ended up uh, being told about this church in Nashville, Community Bible Church. And it actually had a connection to S. Lewis Johnson that I mentioned earlier. He had, mm. he had preached there before. He had mentored one of the elders on the elder board. And so as I entered the church, I understood that it was probably more Arminian than it was Calvinist, kind of a Calvinistic with an Arminian with a Calvinistic appendage, mm-hmm. as we like to say. And the doctrinal statement held to the depravity of man. And, you know, it basically says man can in no way bring himself to God. And, and, and that's the starting point. That's the headwaters of that reality. So I knew that I could I could live and breathe there and, and begin to press those realities out farther. So, you know, I began very slowly because I was in process, still am in process. I'm learning more every day, every week and wanted to be patient. I'd seen some friends of mine make huge mistakes by going in almost condescendingly and uh, demonstrate uh, this arrogance to kind of be the resident theologian and to be in, to, to not befriend men mm-hmm. first, but to school them. And that was a huge mistake. So I, I, I waited very gradually rolling things out, began with some Bible interpretation class, some systematic theology, did a thing called theology for breakfast, which is still ongoing where we did some deep dive into systematic theology mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> just really slowly began to adjust and change the culture of a long period of time. I mean, we're talking 10 years before I did anything to adjust the constitution towards more of a purely elder led context. And it kind of progressed through that for 10 years. I think I began my exposition with the book of Philippians, um, moved to the book of James, did, then did first Corinthians and then the gospel of Matthew done some other things in there, but probably over my 15 years there, I've preached through six books. Mm. consecutively. So I'm a slow um, process. Line by line, huh? Yeah, pretty, pretty, I mean, pretty, pretty much. Um, So as I've, as I've been growing over the years personally, uh, you know, my experience is, would be, and I think I've shared this on the podcast uh, to the tens of people that listen, but (laughs) you know, like when you're a kid and you go out on water at the beach and your parents are right in front of you and you're, you're just enjoying what's in front of you. And then about 30 minutes later, you look up and you're way down the beach, you know, same, same shoreline, same view, just different place. And so I had shifted quite significantly theologically. I began to realize that uh, a lot of my heritage in fundamentalism and dispensationalism wasn't really consistent with where I was. And, uh, about probably five or six years ago, I had to make a decision of whether I wanted to bring the church with me in this transformation, this movement towards more of a confessional world. And I had kind of earned the right to do that. I got comfortable in my own preaching skin, had gained a voice that was my own and not my mentor's voice, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we began to talk as leaders as to whether, literally, whether as being a good steward of the ministry, I should move on. Um, did I want to take all these people with me um, and maybe kind of disrupt what they held as, you know, their commitment theologically, or did I want to help them progress positively? 
And so it was kind of collectively agreed on that we would all move towards more reformed world. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, the, the lingo of the young Rattleson reformed kind of came through the church world. I think it did a lot of good. But I, there's another side of it that it was somewhat of a trend because evangelicalism has that or grab something, uh, kind of retrofit it for themselves and make it a popular thing. And Reformed theology and Calvinism wasn't a trend for me. I'm too old to be part of the young restless and reformed anyway. It was a, it was a, it's a substantial part of who I am and I've been progressing into it for a very long time. So it, it stuck very deeply with me at the very beginning. And as we began to implement some of the changes theologically, um, and became more of a confessional world rather than a pietistic world. And I can add some color to that later. We began to see really deeply how pietism and fundamentalism, how deeply ingrained it is into people's thinking. And so, um, it, it basically, there, it's two different houses altogether, you know, mm-hmm. the same, the same County Christianity, but two different houses altogether. Sure. And so that proved very difficult uh, for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And I, I inadvertently uh, began to uh, maybe disqualify uh, a lot of people's history and their experience by suggesting possibly how they viewed evangelism or how they viewed the interpretation of the Bible or how they viewed the Old Testament was um, invalid or incomplete. And so, unfortunately, we went through a very difficult season as a church, went through a, a church split. We don't even use that word around our church anymore. It's a curse word. And it was very difficult. It's very difficult as a pastor, since we're talking about pastoral ministry, when you, when you, when you operate according to principle, uh, when you say, these are my convictions and this is who I am as a man and I can't change that. This is how I preach. This is how I believe. This is how I sound. This is how I'm convicted. Once you reach that, which all ministers do, they reach this moment where they have to be themselves. Mm-hmm. Typically you're facing reality at that point. And I, I faced it head on. And to this day, I carry a very large burden around uh, having been this instrument of such dramatic change, which was really natural in me. Always you can handle things differently. I think there's no good way to deliver bad news and there's no bad way to deliver good news. But the delivery, you can always second guess yourself, think through things. So just just as the, the, the person on staff who bears the responsibility for the direction for the overall vision, it's a very heavy weight, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's not anything I ever set out aggressively to do to press my agenda because you have to keep in mind. I was leaving fundamentalism, which has a history of kind of running running roughshod over people and was moving into grace and a redemptive historical perspective. And I I was like, I thought all these things were very exciting to people. And that once they found out the Old Testament about Jesus, they would do some fist pumps, uh, throw away all of their, you know, Beth Moore studies or whatever. And we would be, (laughs) we would move on together, but that didn't happen. And, Hmm. uh, it got very intense. Um, you know, it, it's just been quite the experience on that side. But overall, um, I wouldn't change anything. 
about where we are as a church. We've been galvanized. It's been hard earned. Um, but I've, I've been a community for 15 years and of the 15 years to the, to the pastors that are kind of just starting out and listening, I waited 10 years to really implement anything of any significance, mm. thinking that possibly I might avoid some of the hardships by my own wisdom and cleverness, you know, just being the best cruise director of all time <laughs> and nearly capsized it. Yeah. I did everything with dear, you know, sincerity and in, in love and deep conviction and thought everybody was going along with me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, sometimes it's not a cut, it's a tear. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a very formative experience for me. Um, you know, I, and there, there's a deep sense of conviction about these things. Otherwise I wouldn't suffer through all this stuff to be a part of it. So that, that may be more than you uh, wanted to know. And, but, and, and essentially the takeaway is, uh, you can either deal with the pain now or you can deal with the pain 15 years from now. But if you're going to move towards uh, grace and reform theology and a gospel centrality, um, as somebody said, you know, when you when you begin preaching pray, grace, people will applaud you. Five years later, they'll try to get rid of you. And that, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just talk about that then um, right off the bat, sort of the elephant in the room, as it were this whole idea of fundamentalism and leaving it just because as we were talking about before we went on, I've, I've had a similar history and a similar background and um, I just feel very um, strong, strongly towards this. And I would say in my youth and naivete, when I started to realize that what I was um, told when I was younger, isn't necessarily the way it always is or should be or, or whatever, there was probably some retaliation in me uh, right off the bat, you know, just saying I need to retaliate and I need to make sure everyone gets this right, so to speak. And so what can you say to that, to those who maybe are, yes, they're leaving this sort of fundamentalist sort of movement as it were, but are retaliating because even that in and of itself isn't necessarily biblical. And I think, I definitely did that at first. And then it's just realizing now that like you yeah, just realizing to be gracious as one who is a formative speaker and writer on grace. Well, I think that it, the, the experience of realizing what fundamentalism is and what it does to you uh, as a person and maybe the things that it's withheld from you and it didn't allow you to discover that experience was like your parents coming up to you when you're 25 and you, you know, been married two years and saying, Hey, by the way, we're not your real parents. Mm. <laughs> you really begin to question a lot of things and you can be angry at the people that love you and raised you and taught you a lot of good things, but it kind of displaces you. And then I think too, you, you begin to get a sense of some of the spiritual abuse that exists in that culture because it, it definitely does. And, and fundamentalism itself is, uh, is kind of at its base, a, a pietistic, uh, reality. And what I mean by that is uh, fundamentalism and pietism and revivalism all point inward. They're all primarily concerned about the interior of the Christian life. Pietism attaches itself to a certain element within every significant religious movement. Um, it, it existed right after the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, 
Count Zinzendorf, ministry minded, and, you know, many others a podcast that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in a heart messy ministry. I'm your host, Brad Gray, of uh, course, and, and this is episode number seven. It, On today's show, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Bill Brimer. Um, Bill but, is the music pastor at Soul Thirst Church in the colony, Texas. And throughout this discussion, we talk about many different things, including Lutheranism, the beauty of liturgy, and the spiritual experience of really leading music. We also and share our common distaste for the title of worship the most leader. Important thing about the Christian Bill also shares the story behind his newest too. album yeah. with um, the artist. And, and that was the big discovery for me. The big discovery for Bill me also was shares that I had been given a set of lenses. Bill that also shares the story behind his latest uh, album, which you can find on his website. And I love this conversation. I love uh, talking to Bill about grace and theology and, and music. And I think you culture. will too. Today's show, as you know, is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, Offering an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, the CSB helps readers to make a deeper connection with God's Um, Word and inspires a lifelong discipleship. The The CSB is equally suited for serious study or sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. Now, for Bill Brimer. To me. So and now a quick break for a word from my partners in ministry, Dead Men. Uh, and I had preached the sermon now, one back time. to Bill. And a young man came to me and he said, and thanks Look, again I, to I Bill for taking the time to come on the show today. Be sure to follow said, him well, on Twitter and stay up to date with his music at BillBriver.com. You can find all those links in the show notes. And that's it for that today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for I, I staying with me and for listening. If you like what you just heard mm-hmm. and would like to hear more episodes like this, be sure and follow like the show on Twitter. You can also world, subscribe in iTunes, and you can also follow along by grace on SoundCloud. And if you really like what you just heard, you can do me a really good favor and leave me a short review or a comment. That'll go a long way for me to continue making shows like this first. Thanks again to CSB for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for listening and commenting. Commenting and, I, and subscribing. I kind of I'll see I you on the next episode. Sermons. Blessings. One of the sermons was what you might have heard me say, and it was an apology for me to my church. And then the second sermon I preached were the radical implications of grace. Mm-hmm. And these, this is 10, 12 years ago. So before the grace movement ever really came below and through evangelicalism uh, or the gospel-centered movement or whatever you want to call it, it was heavy on my heart. I mean, I was in process at that time. And then um, began to discover that I had inter- I never really understood the Old Testament, honestly. I, it was just like, be like David. <laughs> and then I realized David sucked. You know, I, I have men in my church that live far more godly lives than David. They've never committed adultery against their wife, never fathered a bastard child, and never killed the, you know, his mistress husbands and buried him in the desert. I mean, it's... There, there. You know, I, I just looked at David and went, "David's a total train wreck." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and when it shares David's story in the genealogy of Matthew, it goes to Uriah the Hittite because it wants to tell us you need a, you need something greater than David. Mm-hmm. And man, I mean, things began to fall apart. And but the last straw was I was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and somewhere towards the end of it, I discovered it was about Jesus. Uh, but in the middle of it, I'm preaching this sermon, and this guy visits my church, and he comes up and he says, "Hi, my name's Bill, and I'm visiting your church today." And 
today's my birthday and my parents are with me. They're unbelievers. And they asked me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, go to church with me. So we came here for the first time. And I was like, oh, that's great. And he goes, no, it's terrible. You preached the 45 minute sermon. And now I have to go, now I go have to, I have to go tell my, my parents why, how, how, how Christianity is different than Islam or Judaism or Buddhism and any other works righteousness. How can you be in a Christian church and never meet Jesus or talk about Jesus or the gospel or point outward? And it's like a gun went off by my head. I was like, I was like, I, I wanted to argue, but I couldn't. Mm, mm. It was a very stunning moment. And uh, I've seen the guy in, in public here in Nashville a couple of times. I've, I, first time I saw him, I wanted to slap him. Second time I wanted to hug him, but I figured, you know, I don't want to be a stalker, but um. I mean, things really began to progress at that point. I realized I wasn't crazy. Um, I'd always had an affinity towards Calvinism anyway and reformed. And, that, and, then, and then I got to the Old Testament and just did a redemptive historical U-turn and preached that in my church from Genesis all the way through to the historic books or, and, or to the minor prophets. And people revolted. And they revolted for good and they revolted for bad. It was a total disruption of what people had uh, believed. And that this is where I disqualified their history, I think. I, you know, I basically said uh, the Bible's not a spiritual handbook. It's a story. It's a narrative of what God has done in history, you know, a view of the covenants and whatnot. And there were some that were very grateful, super grateful, changed their life. And there were some that were just completely offended. And that was the beginning of the end or the beginning of the beginning, depending on how you, how you see it. So, and I, and again, I did everything very carefully, progressively, uh, did introductory sermons, created Bible studies for our home fellowship groups, uh, pushed it through the elder board, then the staff, then our leaders. And then about six months after I started, people realized what I meant by what I said. And uh, everybody's flannel boards went up in flames and it was, it was intense. The response was, I never knew people would be so pissed off to hear that Jesus was the point of the Bible, but that's really kind of what happened. Yeah, I've had a similar experience of really realizing that Jesus is the center. And once you realize that, a lot of things really come into place. And let me ask you this, though. I, too, grew up in a fundamental home. And um, so how do you balance, like what you were talking about before, uh, realizing that you're far away from where you grew up and what you grew up like and pursuing that, but also honoring your heritage. And, and does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I think it's important to understand that every, every movement that we might react to now had its place in history mm. and served a good purpose. Fundamentalism served a good re- purpose in pressing back and responding to liberalism and humanism. And then it, and then it morphed into something really different and became something kind of out of control and became kind of cultural and not doctrinal. And, but because I was raised in it and mentored by a lot of the people in it and heavily influenced by it and, and being a history major in my undergraduate work, I realized that it had its place and that at some point in the future, my son's generation is going to be very critical of me for overreacting to something. I mean, it's just the way that it is. And so, you know, I had to make a decision uh, of, of what was home for me. 
So I think it's, I think it's the wrong move most of the time to try to reform a denomination that has a historic commitment to a certain set of truths. That's like, that's like showing up at the Presbyterian church for the first time, going there for like three weeks and then you have lunch with the pastor and say, look, you know, if we'd love to stay here, but if, if you ditch the robes and quit doing the liturgy and quit, quit cat catechizing or however you call that <laughs> my kids in the Sunday school class, then we'll join here. I mean, it's just people's heritage is people's heritage. And I think it's, I think it's the height of arrogance for young men like myself to go rushing into a sandwich shop claiming to have invented sliced bread. I mean, our scope of history is so narrow that we think we're coming up with these things. You know, like we're revolutionaries and we're really not. Yeah. yeah. And so I think stepping back and understanding church history broadly will calm you down because you can see how what you're going through, Luther went through and Calvin went through and others have gone through. It's, it, there's a reformation. We always have to come bring ourselves back from the precipice. And I, you know, I never felt like it was my job to write the final epistle. Uh, I never went kind of crazy ex-girlfriend on the church. I stayed in a fundamentalist church to reform it from the inside out. Um, I, I was never really angry. In fact, I I didn't dis dis dismiss myself from that culture. I tried to stay in it. They dismissed me mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted to be patient and gracious and was convinced that these things are right and, and, and could prove it exegetically. But I do think that some people some some individuals can become you know so intense in their initial reactions that they feel like they've been lied to or certain things have been withheld from them or there's a different way to do it and uh, you have to find out where home is and for me reformed theology and a confessional theology is home and once i found that i was at peace with myself and, and then you're able to look around and say, well, I don't, I don't belong here. It would be actually very irresponsible of me to stay here and to tell the Presbyterian pastor to ditch the robe mm. as a matter of speaking. And so I think you pastors and those heading into ministry have to operate with a certain ministerial ethic. And that is that people who think differently than we are or that we think in the ways that we think and the particular passions that we have can't be completely discarded. And they're, they're not ultimately our enemies. Um, and we don't want to make the mistake of becoming secondary fundamentalists by acting like fundamentalists towards fundamentalists. <laughs> so it's strange to me that some of those who preach the gospel and grace can be the most legalistic and hostile you know, you, you can be a reformed fundy culturally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, ne I never really wanted to do that or be that because uh, the angry prophet, I get tired of hearing them. Mm. I just want to hear a broken prophet. Speak to your own people. Let God deal with how large your platform is going to be. Trust him. Live courageously within your convictions. And you're, you're not the next Luther. <laughs> I mean, you're just not. It's not going to happen that way. That happened once, right? <laughs> and it's not going to happen again. And 
I, I just think there's a, there's a certain level of humility that can be lacking if we're not in touch with a larger historic reality, mm-hmm. right? Because Augustine and Pelagius battled this, you know, in the fourth century. So I, we're probably not going to add anything new <laughs> to the discussion. Our broadmides on Twitter aren't going to go down as the next confessions. So, No, I like that. It's about realizing your place in a larger story. And when you do that, you realize really what you're called for, what Jesus has for you in the first place. And I think, though, let's, let's just touch on this really quick. Uh, it's sort of the linchpin, I think, of fundamentalism as a whole, what you talked about before, this distinction between faith and faithfulness, which to me, when you kind of boil it down to it, is where it comes into play. Talk about that and just the importance of maintaining that distinction between faith and faithfulness. Right. Well, I think probably the best way to illustrate it is in the book of Hebrews. It's in my, in my discussions with people, it's the most obvious example of our error. So mm-hmm. um, to say that there's a distinction between faith and faithfulness is to suggest that a reform world is focused on faith in an object. The pietistic, fundamentalist, revivalistic world or evangelical world is concerned about faithfulness. That is the practicality of the Christian life, personal holiness, the interior of the Christian life. And, and I think it would be very easy to prove that within evangelicalism and dispensationalism and pietism, that, that faith as an object outside of yourself, the confessions, the sacraments, the Lord's table, the gospel as a rubric of understanding is kind of secondary. You know, it's it's the start. It's the entry point. Right. And not the sphere, not the oxygen in which we breathe daily. That's faithfulness. That's the Christian bookstore. Right. There's no, and, and it's all practicality. It's all codification. It's all about living. We've we've taken American Western suburban values and mixed them with Christianity and out, you know, comes this bizarre mixture. And so we go into the Bible reading it that way, that it's, it's about being faithful. So if you go in the book of Hebrews, it's like chapter one, Jesus is greater than angels. You know, chapter two, Jesus is greater than Moses. Three, the law, Aaron, Melchizedek, whoever he is. The priesthood, the holy of holies, Jesus is greater than, don't leave him. Jesus is the object of your faith, believe in him. Warnings, um, and then we get to chapter 11 and something happens to us. We have all these people like Rahab, a harlot, and Samson, you know, the Casanova, the Bible is a total idiot. And what do we say? Well, these are faithful people. Do what they did. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. insanity. Mm-hmm. That's not even the point at all. But it, that is so honest that we get to Hebrews 11, which is about faith in Christ. And then we say, here's some other people that are pretty good. Go be like them. But the point of Hebrews is, 11, they believed in what you believe. They trusted, despite who they are, in something outside of themselves, the promises of God, which is the only explanation for why Rahab makes it in there. That's right. right? So we interpret the Bible through faithfulness. We think that the Bible is about us. 
it includes us. We're in the stars in the sky, which Abraham was shown, his descendancy, spiritually speaking. But that distinction between faith and faithfulness is, in my mind, the fundamental distinction that, yes, there is faithfulness, there is living, there is obedience, there's repentance and those kind of things, which we're called to do. There are imperatives, third use of the law, however you want to describe it. But all of that is derived from the other side of this thing, which is faith. And so we have, you know, if they, if, if somebody says that I or other people that preach what I preach are hyper grace, I laugh at them and say, almost thank you. And <laughs> how can you deny that we've been hyper sanctification for the last 200 years? Yep. Yep. And that's what medieval theology was, was hyper sanctification. And, you know, to me, it's just very obvious, you know, and I would also say that either the either assurance is the essence of Christianity or assurance is the pursuit of Christianity. It's another way to say it, meaning that what the gospel is, is the assurance that God has done what is necessary in his son to put you in good standing with him and you are safe by grace, through faith, now and in the future. That assurance is the essence of it, which means that I come beside your life and remind you in the battle of your flesh and in this world that despite how you feel or what you can't do or can't accomplish, that these things have been done by Christ. Or assurance is the pursuit of the Christian life, which you get brought into it, and then you you spend the rest of your life gaining assurance through the things that you do. And you can never gain assurance ultimately through the things that you do. There's a jeopardy involved. And that is Roman Catholic to the core where justification and sanctification are tied together in one event. So if assurance is the essence of Christianity, then my striving is to rest. I strive to rest and believe and trust and live, right? But if assurance is the pursuit and the goal, then I strive to strive. Mm-hmm. And the Reformation was about assurance being the essence, not assurance being the pursuit. The Reformation was opposed to assurance being the pursuit of the Christian life. Yep, yep. And so uh, when when I'm speaking this language, when I'm talking this way, I'm I'm in the 16th century and the 17th century. I'm in Synod of Dort. I'm in the Belgic Confession. I'm in the Heidelberg Catechism. I, I'm at the epicenter of this event, realizing how far away from it we've gotten and how far we drifted. So. In at community, the language faith, not faithfulness, or faith before faithfulness, or the essence of Christianity, not the pursuit of Christianity, is part of our vocabulary and language, and, and people understand it. And you know, and it's a very different world because you don't kind of come into our church and get you know 10 points on how to be a better astronaut, Christian astronaut, of course, which there actually is a book on that, but. <laughs> It's just really a kind of a, I mean, people come in and go like, where's the stuff? And we're like, 
what stuff? Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, yeah, I'm an astronaut. Help me, help me do that in a Christian way. We're like, there's no such thing as a Christian astronaut. There's a Christian who is an astronaut. And if he's doing a spacewalk, probably he's not, he doesn't care about 10 principles. He cares about God. If this line breaks and I descend into infinite space, please help me know that when I die out there out of, you know, with no oxygen, the, the things that you promised me are true. I probably pushed that analogy too far, but <laughs> I mean, that's our world. That's our culture. Our culture here is, uh, you know, the, I, I'm not a policeman to my people. I'm a paramedic. Mm, mm, you know, mm. I'm delivering Christ to them. And people say, well, or what are we supposed to do now? And I'm like, live. Just live, you know, be a, an ordinary person trusting. Because I don't, I don't find all of that detail, all that codification in the Old Testament. Anytime I find codification, I find Jesus rebuking people. Very true. Very true. I think one of the things that people, you know, react to, like, I haven't heard this before. Tell me more about this, this stuff you're talking about. You know, I, I remember, I'll just tell this real quick. I was at a church last year and I had a similar conversation with a guy after the sermon. And he said to me, I haven't heard a sermon like that in a very, very long time. And in one way that's encouraging, but it's also sad that this is, really the foundation of the whole thing and people are saying that they haven't heard that before and to me as people who've grown up in church and around the church and are familiar with church speak that's what saddens me and it also burdens me too to speak this message just all the louder you know jesus said at one point that unless you have faith like a child you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven right yeah yeah and I think that we're so in the faithfulness category that we have no idea what he's talking about. And and so when people say uh, faith like a child, well, it's dependent. You know, it's like being dependent. Uh, it's any number of things. But, you know, when we grow from a child physically to an adult, we go from simplicity to complexity. You know, there's a there's a simple there's a simplicity to life. We're not even really taking care of ourselves, right? We're just living, and there's a freedom there, and there's a joy there. And then as you get older, life gets more complicated. That's why everybody's going, I wish I was eight again. <laughs> well, in the spiritual world, you progress from complexity to simplicity. <laughs> and so the way that your faith is supposed to grow is you move away from legalism and moralism and complexity and codification towards the simplicity of faith and trust. And as you move that direction, the motivations change, the direction of change changes, like it goes from the inside out, not the outside in. And this is the same reason when you meet somebody who's very old, you know, in their late 80s or 90s, who are a believer, they're pretty relaxed. I mean, they've been through all these experiences and it's taken them their entire life right before they die to realize it's about faith and trust. Right. It's not about all these other things. And so you see this eminently godly person and you walk up to him and you go like, you're the guy like, you know, I've always envisioned you, you gray beard, and you wear a hat and a cane and you say perhaps a lot. And how did you get this way? And the guy looks at you and goes, bro, I'm a total wreck. I mean, I, I spend all of my day repenting in deep places that I, that I thought I'd never see again. And I do. 
So when Jesus said, you, you can't be a part of my kingdom unless you're like a child, he was, he was rebuking uh, the moral codification and sophistication and complexity that men put on top of things. He, mm-hmm. he wasn't saying that's an entry point. He was saying that's the status of people yep. who are a part of me. And we're anything but children in this regard. We're, you know, we're very complex and very complicated. And it's, it's codified world. I, you know, m- most people, it, we have a subculture of language. Um, we have verbiage that doesn't even make sense. How's your walk with Jesus going? If you ask a, somebody new to church that way, they're going to be like, I, I haven't seen Jesus or walked with him at all. They don't understand that language at all. But it's like, it's like a secret handshake and a code. Nobody's normal. Like, no wonder we're not good at evangelism because we, we, we're really bad at loaning our neighbor an egg, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're really good at sticking something into his, under his nose. It's like, he, he's like, I, I, I don't, that looks like religion to me. I don't know what that is. So, the, it, you know, what we preach is faith, trust in something outside of yourself that is hard to believe is true is the battle of the Christian life. Yep. yep. It, it is the battle of the Christian life. It's what every saint has ever battled with is, are these things true? And all our do- idolatry in our life is a breakdown of that simple premise. It is a childlike faith. It's believing that God is going to split the sea and you're going to walk through on dry ground. I mean, our lives as believers in this modern context are no different than the lives of Old Testament saints in that regard. It's the same battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's and you find that everywhere in the Bible. It's not even it's not even hard to find. I mean, these distinctions are everywhere and you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, I immediately think of Paul and Romans and I think that's like the perfect example of a guy who is really battling and fighting for belief because he knows what he does and he knows what he should do and what he shouldn't do and how can he believe in the grace that he just talked about and the grace that is even greater than sin in Romans 5.20 and he's battling for that very belief, for believing in that very truth that he just talked about. And we don't often realize just what's going on there. Yeah, and when he when he says towards the end of that section, who will save me from this body of death, he doesn't say, you know, this great Bible study I found. <laughs> yeah, or this this latest trend spiritually, or my my this my spiritual disciplines will. He points outside of himself, right? Yeah, yeah. Christ Jesus, my Lord, you know. And uh, Romans seven, it's interesting that in this discussion of faith versus faithfulness, that yeah, yeah, what really tripped Arminius up was Romans seven. Mm-hmm. Arminius came across that in his exegetical work and his teaching in Leiden and basically concluded there's no way that this can be the normative experience of a believer. And there's no way we can tell people it's the normative experience of a believer because if you do that, you know what's going to happen. The bar is going to be lowered so far that they're going to live any way that they want. And that is a complete misunderstanding of what's going on in the Christian life, a la Romans six, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that work, which was begun in me was begun by God and he will bring it to completion. And part of my struggle 
is with who I am in the first Adam now naturally versus who I am in the second Adam by faith and declaration. And so not only is it the normative experience, if it isn't your experience, you should be concerned. And but because Arminius was being affected by rationalism and moralism, he didn't have any space for it, didn't have any place for it. So it's interesting watching and reading about Romans 7 in various places. When anyone's making an argument for why this cannot be the normative Christian experience, they're always looking towards some sort of Wesleyan holiness, uh, radical transformationalism that is really Arminian at base. They're making the same fundamental arguments. And it, it's interesting to watch Calvin and or the Calvinist and the Arminians go back together on this this point. All that to say that it's it's been the same argument from the beginning of time. So, you know, one other thing uh, I'd like to add to this discussion, if I can. Yeah. If you're progressing, like if one of your listeners is progressing through this, um, the way that I like to describe this is, is that evangelicals, fundamentalists, Baptists, pietists, whomever we are, find reform theology through certain exterior doors. Like most, in, in my case, I came in through the door of grace and entered the room of grace. It was in there for a long time, and it was awesome. Um, I was in the end of Matthew, heading into 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, and, and, and it's all there. It's amazing. And I stayed in that room for a very long time. And then I heard this, you know, this thumping next door, and it sounded like people were having a great time in there. So I went around the corner to the next room, which was a redemptive historical view of the Bible, which is where, you know, um, the Old Testament series came from. And a lot of people make the same progression. Like, that's how it works. And then the next thing, you're like, there's another party going on next door, and they're playing Beyonce, so it's got to be great. And so you go in there, and it's a law-gospel distinction, because, oh, you know, the Lutherans will play Beyonce, no problem. So the law-gospel distinction's in there, and you're saying, it's law-gospel, and this is amazing. And you you kind of move from place to place. But some people get stuck in rooms, right? I mean, some people get stuck in law-gospel distinctions. Some people get stuck in... A redemptive historical interpretation. So people get stuck in the grace and, and you never make it to the great hall, you know, and you don't realize you're in this large area. This it's, it's an edifice. It's called reformed theology in a confessional world. And it's been there for a long time, hmm. but we're kind of going from room to room and we get stuck in it because we love it. I mean, there are great things in the grace room, great things in the redemptive history, great things in the law gospel room, great things in the faith and faithful in this room, you know, and on and on you go. And you could spend all your life in there. And, and then somebody knows what they're talking about comes and goes, oh, you know, and they take you out the side door and they walk around the front and you walk through the front and you, you, you realize that the great hall, which holds it all together, the covenants and that the Bible's about two atoms and that the father and the son covenanted to do this one thing that the one atom didn't do outside of us unilaterally. And it puts, it holds it all together. I mean, yeah. it, it kind of, it's like the great hall that makes the rest of it make sense. And so what I've been doing in is, is like, is kind of coming around at the front and entering in like Presbyterians and Lutherans get a front door 
uh, we evangelicals are entering through the side door. I mean, we, we act like we invented all this stuff, but guys are like, bro, the party's been going on for 1500 years. Where have you been? <laughs> and so in, in my experience, there are people that get stuck in certain rooms mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I've just been very careful to try to connect myself to the entire architecture of what's going on. And once I did that, it became very, it, it very safe. That's why I say reform theology is home. Cause I finally came in through the front door and realize that the things that I'm saying or have been saying have been said for years and years and years and years by people who are far more articulate than I am. So the more dead people I can quote, the better, quite frankly. And so and in our world, the confessions themselves have put so many people at ease because it's like being in one of those rides at Disney world that has that kind of virtual movement. You know, and there's a screen in front of you. If you get motion sickness every once in a while, you just got to reach down and touch the floor. Well, the confessions are really coming in touch with history and this foundation of real. So, so people who are having this experience, they all of a sudden they realize that grace is amazing, or they realize that the law and the gospel is in a major distinction that you have to make, or faith and faithfulness, or redemptive historical. The Bible is not about me and my morality; it's about God accomplishing what He promised you begin to discover that there's a much bigger world out there and, and which kind of pieces it all together. And once you hit that point, uh, you're in, I mean, you get the secret handshake and you, you know, you go through the hazing, the whole thing. And, and for us, that's what's happened. We've entered, we, somebody took us around the front and look, it's a, you know, an evangelicalism on the other hand is this, shanty town of these different shacks that are about that are are disconnected not connected to anything are all over the place and so we're we're just at home now i mean we're we're like running amok we're in the library we're in the kitchen we're in the great hall from the back patio we're meeting all these people and learning all this stuff from all these years and like the the ultimate message is dude we are not crazy but you know it's it's hard to explain to people Mm. I guess. I don't know. I don't even know if that explanation is sufficient. It's the first time I've ever tried it. But <laughs> I really like that illustration so much so that I'm not going to try and mess it up by adding to it. Um, let's sort of bring it down a level, though, and uh, bring it down a little bit. And just let me ask you this. Um, what was the inspiration behind you starting your podcast, uh, Theocast? What, how did that come about? Well, it was, it was, it was uh, polemical. Honestly, um, we, we, we knew that we needed to kind of speak for ourselves. Um, we had been so ravaged by fundamentalism and criticized by our own circle. Um, you know, we got accused of everything, including being Christian, um, <laughs> you know, antinomian, Whatever, which, of course, I'm not an Arminian. So about the only thing as a Calvinist you can accuse me of is that. And we just needed to explain ourselves. But additionally, we found the medium to be really helpful in capturing what kind of happens in our office and in our elder meetings all the time, which is this kind of free verse discussion like we're having now where we get into these threads and we start pushing each other in different directions and encouraging and sharpening. And we thought it would be helpful if our congregation could get in on that. 
And so we just, we, that's basically what we said. Let's next time we have one of these conversations, let's put up some mics, let's record it. Let's give it to our people. And so that's what we did. And it kind of exploded. And so basically it's four guys in a room who are, trying to bring our church in on some conversations that we have, which are ways to make points that we couldn't make in sermons or they would go on for three hours. (laughs) And so we do an hour long to an hour and five minute podcast that in Nashville traffic, will get them from home to work or work to home, depending on how they listen. It gets me home. Yeah. So, and that was the inspiration for Let's just start talking and whatever comes out, comes out and, Let's just take people, let's get, let's get people in on the conversation. So that's not a secret. We get them way into the, to the progress of our thoughts and let's deal with things that other people aren't going to deal with. And let's just, let's just point out the Truman show nonstop. Let's deconstruct evangelicalism by one stupid idea at a time. And uh, that's, that's kind of where it came from. And John Moffat, quite frankly, was the inspiration behind it and, you know, a guy's super gifted at it and we show up every Tuesday and it's like, this is what we're talking about. Go. And the the rest is, a, is I don't know what you, what you call it, but that's, that's where it came from. Well, that's awesome. I have been greatly benefited from listening. And so, so thank you. But just as you were talking about, you know, seeing this sort of edifice of, reformed theology for guys who are trying to work this out and work through sort of maybe coming to the realization, Hey, I I might be a reformed guy uh, and come to this similar conclusion. What books would you recommend to guys who are, are trying to work that out? There's a great book out there by Marsden Marsden called uh, fundamentalism in American culture. And you might not agree with all of his theology and some of his perspective Um, as a historian might not be through a theological angle, but what he does is give you a really large overview of where fundamentalism came from in our culture, how it's influenced us. Uh, Anything that you can also read on revivalism, like revival and revivalism by Ian Murray is, is, is very related because fundamentalism comes from that. Ultimately R. Scott Clark has a book um, it's entitled recovering the reform confession. I believe is the name of it where he deals with some of this HG Hart was a big influence on me. I can't remember the name of the book uh, right now. Uh, it might be called reform theology in America or something to that effect. But if you go to our website, if you go to musingsofgrace.org or theocast.org uh, there's a resource we deal with pietism and revivalism. And if you go to that blog or that podcast, there are resources listed there. Um, And for me, this was a very important thing to realize that there were other people that were all out there talking about this, like what's called a post evangelical reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And where it came from historically, but Marsden was very influential because he had all the resources, all the documentation. R. Scott Clark, is like a scratch record here <laughs> has been very helpful to us. Michael Horton has probably one of been one of the more his Christless Christianity is a subtle book, but 
he lays down without using these terms, the faith and faithfulness dichotomy in evangelicalism. And that was a very helpful book, very eye-opening book. Tim Keller has been helpful here as well. Uh, Some of his distinctions, believe it or not, are kind of along these lines, although he's, you know, like the president of evangelicalism through together through the gospel or whatever that is, uh, the gospel coalition, the gospel corporation, as it's known. (laughs) Um, Those have been really helpful authors, uh, resources. If you read also, if you read Machen's Christianity and liberalism, you'll find a lot of the same kind of distinctives here that apply that applied there, but also apply in our world as well. Um, the, to me, those have been some pretty, pretty substantial authors that have helped mentor my own thinking on it. Great. Thank you so much for those suggestions. I will definitely have to add those to my ever growing reading list. (laughs) Now I don't want to keep you for too long or just hold you up too much, but, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, the majesty's men is a, collective of young guys who who just love Jesus and who want to impact other young guys with the gospel of Christ crucified. And I know your background is in youth ministry, so if you were given an audience of young men today and were only allowed to say one thing to them, uh, what would that one thing be? That's a great great question. Um, And I should know this because I wrote a book about this, um, you know, if I, if I were talking to young men in student ministries, is that what you mean? Or do you mean in ministry? Uh, both. Which, uh, both. <laughs> I mean, honestly, what I have said to young men in the student ministries context, people that I've mentored is, um, forget everything your parents ever taught you about the gospel, <laughs> you know, begin, and I, obviously that's tongue in cheek, but your, your, your faith, your journey of faith has to be your own. It can't, can't be an inherited thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that you have to learn to walk on your own to faith, so to speak. And that is about belief and trust and awareness. Um, and so I think that in, in, in our culture, our students in particular, there are urban myths and legends about Christianity that they've just kind of inherited and accepted. And so there's a need, I think, for young men and students in general to be somewhat contrarian and to think through and to be discerning um, and to have their own Truman Show experience in, in, in a way of thinking. Uh, we want them to, to compare the things that they hear with the text of Scripture to take responsibility for their own life and knowledge and to, to be discerning along many of the lines that I've described there. You know, we've done this with our own students and it's been revolutionary. You know, I remember I did a student retreat with them where that was the theme, forget everything your parents ever taught you about the gospel. And we just deconstructed like Fox news is not Christian journalism and Chick-fil-A is not Christian food. You know, to to those that are thinking about ministry, I would say that there's 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 kind of two major benchmarks. One of them is on the entry point, and one of them is a deep into life of ministry. 
um, one of those is where you realize you can't really do anything else. And even if you do something else, this is what you want to do when you're done doing it, that you love the church and you're passionate about the church. You're going to go through that experience. And then that's going to enter you into this journey. And then somewhere along the way, you're going to quit preaching other people's sermons. You're going to quit living other people's convictions. You're going to quit um, parroting other people's sound bites, and you're really going to start thinking for yourself. And that's it's a very precarious moment to get comfortable in your own skin and to begin thinking for yourself. And there's kind of a first life and second life of ministry. And the first life of ministry is that in-between stage, the I can't do anything else, and you're becoming your own person. Uh, but if you're a deep thinker and you're convicted about certain things, you're, you're going to realize that it's not a one-size-fits-all. And you're going to have to disagree with your heritage. You're going to have to disagree with your mentors. You're going to have to become your own man. Find your own voice. And getting from one side of that to the other is usually accompanied by necessary suffering. But all the people that we like to listen to in preaching or we like to read, the one thing that we're usually drawn to more than anything is just sincerity. I mean, there's truth, but they they can kind of say things that we've been thinking in ways that capture what we're thinking better than we're thinking it, you know, and it's, it's, there's this sincerity of thought. I mean, their oratory is average, but what they're saying is so true and so universally true that it just draws you in and finding your own voice, becoming your own theologian, finding your own suit of ministry is that experience of taking that accumulative experience of knowledge and mentoring and transitioning over into, I mean, that's where real ministry begins. And I think for most men, you don't really begin to minister truly until 15 years into your own experience, which sound odd, but if you're thinking and you're, you're, you're passionate and you're pursuing this faith versus faithfulness distinction, you, you, there's an, there's an incredible liberation that takes place at a certain point. And I, I pray it for all of my own associate pastors that, and I can see it happening. You know, they're not, I mean, the guys that are on the podcast work for me, but we, we sound like equals <laughs> and they come their own man. That, that transition is bumpy. It's complicated. Uh, it can be costly, but at some point conviction and principle has, you have pushes you through to the other side. And your voice becomes very distinct. The people that are under you are there for that reason. And the things for which you care and are passionate about. And that that transition is coming. It's out there. And you kind of know it's coming. It's like a cloud on the horizon. But when it gets there, it's kind of a blessed thing. So I would tell you that getting to your own voice, finding your own suit of conviction, becoming your own man in ministry without abandoning everything you've learned or the people that have helped you get there is, is, is an important event and that when it comes and it will come to embrace it 
that's what happened to me. Um, and it's, it's been a joyous thing, you know, um, I'm grateful for everything I've been taught. I'm grateful for where I learned and how I learned and who I learned it from. But there comes a time where you have to stand on your own convictions in ministry. That is so true, Byron. And I just really appreciate your heart and, and your ministry to me personally. I don't want to mess anything up by trying to add anything else. So just thank you so much for coming on and sharing with me. It was very educational and, and very encouraging to me personally. So So thank you so much. It's my sincere privilege. I don't have any real estimation about how helpful these things are to guys. Um, you know, I, I'm, if that's true, then that's because the Lord has done things in me and to me and um, changed me in a way that makes my voice resonate in certain ways with certain people. And that's all of him. So thanks, bro. And thanks again to Byron for taking the time to come on the show today. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and go follow Theocast too. You can find all those links, of course, in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for staying with me and for listening. If you like what you just heard and would like to hear more episodes like this, be sure to follow the show on Twitter, and you can also subscribe in iTunes, or you can follow along on SoundCloud. And if you really like what you just heard, you can do me a really quick favor and just leave a short review or a comment. That'll go a long way for me to continue making shows like this happen. Thanks again to the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for listening and for commenting and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode.